The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's The Big Take from Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, why it really does matter who wins that one single U.S. Senate seat that's up for grabs in Georgia. We, we always knew that this race would be close. That's where we are. So y'all just hang in there. I'm feeling good. I do. I feel good. I'm telling you right now, I'm like Ricky Bobby. I don't come to lose. And uh, and I told you, he's going to be tough to beat. He's going to be tough to beat, but let me tell you what. He got the wrong Georgia here. Once again, the balance of power in the U.S. Capitol comes down to a Georgia Senate seat. This time, the race between Democrat Raphael Warnick and the Republican Herschel Walker won't decide who controls the Senate. Democrats have already locked that up. But adding just one more vote to that slimmest of majorities would give Democrats and President Joe Biden a surprising amount of power that they won't have if Republicans win it instead. To explain why that is and to paint a picture of what's in store in Washington, I'm joined by Mario Parker, who leads Bloomberg's U.S. politics coverage, White House correspondent Nancy Cook, and Craig Gordon, Bloomberg's national editor. Thanks for having us, Wes. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we're excited. Craig, maybe I'll start with you. We know Democrats have hung on to their majority in the Senate by the narrowest of margins. So why did it matter if they're able to get just one more seat from Georgia? I mean, look, anybody who watched the United States Senate for the past two years and the Democrats were ostensibly in control found out that a 50-50 Senate with Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker is not that great of a Senate majority uh, when you have people like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, himself probably facing a tough race next uh, in a couple of years, Kristen Sinema there from Arizona. So anything they can do to sort of pad that margin and make not every single vote sort of a, a, you know, a, you know, a perilous last minute thing where they have to drive the vice president to the Capitol is, is pretty important. I think it's even more important now that we know the Republicans will control the House. Um, you know, Biden had both the Senate and the House for the first two years uh, and did get some stuff done over the summer. But now he's going to be dealing with, you know, the House Republicans there, probably a lot of investigations of his son, of the border, of every other thing. So having a little bit of a cushion in the Senate to try to get some stuff through there and, you know, pass some bills and try to put some pressure on the House Republicans to say, hey, you want to be just obstructionist or do you want to actually get some stuff done for the country? I think it's really crucial. Um, I think that's kind of a subtle argument to make in the state of Georgia. But we in Washington know that's a that's a pretty big deal. And and I think to Craig's point, we've all seen the the cutaways w- during the consequential votes where it's like Vice President Kamala Harris is heading back to the Capitol again. I think for her, uh, politically, this will be a relief because she doesn't have to be as tethered to Washington. And that has ramifications for that 2024 field as well, right? Republicans have this deep bench of people behind former President Donald Trump 
Kamala Harris wants to be the heir apparent to Biden, but she just hasn't had the same opportunity to get out and campaign. This frees her up a little bit more to to really boost her profile outside of Washington, D.C. That's a really good point. And we're going to come back to the consequences for the 24 uh, race just in a little bit. Nancy, I wanted to ask you, Craig had mentioned uh, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, who tied up Biden's agenda with all kinds of demands, uh, greatly shrank it in the amount of money and the scope of, of the thing. How would one more Democratic seat, if Raphael Warnock, the Democrat in Georgia, wins, how would that affect Biden's ability to kind of push things through at least the Senate side of the Capitol? Well, there's a bunch of things that he will want to push through, particularly like judicial nominations. That's a very key thing um, over the next two years. But just not having to cater to Joe Manchin would be such a big deal for this White House if they can um, hold that Georgia Senate seat. There is a whole apparatus in the White House that's basically like the catering to Joe Manchin department. And remind people, what exactly did Joe Manchin do that so hamstrung uh, the Biden administration? Well, basically, uh, the, the sweeping legislative package that the Biden team was originally calling Build Back Better, which was worth trillions of dollars and had clean energy stuff, but also more money for child care centers and community college and pre-K, basically Manchin singularly totally scaled that back because he said he was worried about inflation and didn't like the size of it. So they did end up passing sort of a a secondary version of it called the Inflation Reduction Act, but it was much, much smaller and centered around things like health care, clean energy, tax credits. um, And and it's, it's just it really shrank the ambitions of the Biden team. So, Craig, you know, if you have that one extra vote like you were talking about, it's Easy to be a single standout, but kind of hard to have two standouts that can withstand the full pressure of the White House and the party to get something done. That's right. And in the case of Manchin, um, he, being from a coal state, uh, took a lot of these sort of green energy proposals very seriously, thought thought they were sort of a, a threat to his hometown economy, basically. I don't think Kristen Sinema sort of shares his passion on some of those issues. So green, green jobs, green tech, electric vehicle subsidies, things like that that Biden might want to try to do in, a, in the next two years, probably have an easier road. But, you know, she was pretty feisty on on the budget deficit stuff. I mean, she was very sort of fiscally conservative. So I could see places where Manchin and Cinema still lock arms. And even with the one extra, if Warnock pulls it off, it's still not enough. But I do think it just makes his road better. And it sounds like it puts a lot of people in the, in the uh, what do we do about Joe Manchin department out of work inside the Biden White House. And just one more thing I would want to point out is that the 2024 map for Democrats in the Senate is much tougher. And so I think that they want to have all the wins that they can have now, because I think in two years, defending the Senate and holding on to it will be much trickier. And I think that that's something that the White House is aware of. It's also not crazy to imagine a Supreme Court nomination coming up potentially in the next two years. God only knows what could happen there. We've seen some real big surprises, obviously, uh, with Bader Ginsburg and such. So then even there, just that one vote could could make the difference between someone getting out of the Supreme Court and not getting out of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and aside from uh, that, court pick's obviously a big deal. And just having that extra vote, there's the whole mechanics of the Senate and, and Senate committees 
and how they're divided in the vote. So, Mario, can you just kind of lay out why having one extra Democrat really affects the way just the business of the Senate gets done? Yeah, President Biden, I think over this past weekend, he was asked about uh, why 51 matters, and he said it's just better, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you take that's that. A, that's a former senator talking <laughs> exactly, right there. Exactly, yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> and, exactly. And it's, that's, the, that's the Joe Biden that was in the Senate for, what, almost four decades. And so you, you get an extra seat on, in cushy committees uh, like the Intelligence Committee, the Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, that's quite important, particularly given what we've seen from Republicans talking about Ukraine aid as well and some of the things that are going on in Europe and in the Middle East also. So you get the Democrats get an advantage in some of those key committees. Nancy, Craig, and Mario, please stick around. We'll continue this conversation after the break. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Nancy, we've talked about why this Georgia Senate seat is so important. Uh, Bring us up to speed. What's the latest in the race between Walker and Warnock? Well, um, it's getting really ugly and dirty down there, I would say, in Georgia. There's a lot of mudslinging from both candidates as to, you know, what they stand for, uh, a lot of accusations. Um, Herschel Walker is saying that, you know, um, Raphael Warnock, uh, his church oversaw a housing complex that did not treat tenants well. well. I don't want anyone evicted. The people behind us right now is being evicted. Yes, it's true. And he knew about it. You know, there's been a lot of allegations from women, not necessarily the Democratic Party, about uh, Walker's own stance on abortion. We do know that um, my opponent has trouble with the truth. But I am focused squarely uh, on the health care needs of my constituents, including reproductive health care. And so they've really sort of been going after each other in a, in a pretty extreme way, and that just keeps ramping up. Um, I think that the concern sort of a few weeks ago was what would the turnout look like? But what we have seen so far is that the turnout has been gangbusters on both sides. And we're seeing that uh, Black Georgians are outpacing other demographic groups in terms of the turnout, um, which could potentially favor the Democrats or does historically in elections. And so... But it's interesting because I think people were really feeling like whoever had the best turnout would win the election. And we've just seen a huge number of people voting. So one thing you mentioned is uh, how black Georgians are turning out more. Obviously, in in Georgia, like a lot of states, cities tend to be more Democratic. The suburbs and the the rural areas tend to be more Republican. Do we know how the voting is going, breaking down from what we've seen from all these uh, early votes? It looks like it's, uh, as, as you kind of outlined, Wes, a lot of the metropolitan Atlanta is having a, a strong turnout by all indications. There's been just uh, reams of pictures on social media with the long lines that we're accustomed to seeing in, in Georgia elections. And, and one point I think that's important, we just spent a, a bit of time talking about why 51 matters. We're all Washington insiders, right? Even though we don't want to be told that. We, we understand some of the parliamentarian rules. The average voter doesn't, right? So 
The fact that Democrats were able to withstand a red wave, it kind of removes the Republican argument that, hey, this seat is so consequential. It's a it's a way to change the, the control of the chamber. Republicans don't have that advantage as they seek to stoke that some of their voters. So as you well. mean that that may just make it so that Republicans who thought there was a lot of stake would show up and this time they're like, eh. Exactly. Especially when you have a candidate, uh, as you mentioned, like Herschel Walker, who uh, is unorthodox to say the least, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of the base had a problem with him. And you see some of the ads with Warnock right now, he's attacking that weak spot where he's running ads with Republicans, particularly as Nancy mentioned, uh, black Georgians are important, but what Warnock's doing is running ads with white Republicans saying, hey, you know what, this guy Herschel Walker, I'm not sure about him, right? So he's trying to punch that weak spot that Herschel Walker had. Craig, that's an um, interesting point um, that you see a lot of Democrats who are kind of excited about Warnock. They feel like he's a good candidate, obviously won once. He's got a, a, a pretty good record and a story to tell. Whereas Herschel Walker, you know, he's got a baggage with abortion uh, where he, you know, asked uh, uh, women to get abortions, which he's denied. Uh, he has a problem with the residency where it turns out he lived in Texas until five minutes ago in political terms. Um you see a lot of big Republicans, uh, like the governor of Georgia, like Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, all coming around Walker, but they don't seem like they're all excited about Herschel Walker. They just seem like they're excited about the idea of a Republican winning. And as we said earlier, that's a very subtle argument to try to make. You know, just we need to get our guy into the Senate. It's not going to make a difference on the majority, but it's better to have our guy than their guy. I, I just think, I, I think, you know, a pretty honest political assessment would be there's a certain amount of Republicans that kind of held their nose and voted for Herschel Walker. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people that love him. Certainly was a massive football star for uh, University of Georgia down there. I'm sure he's got a legion of followers. But I have a feeling there's a, a, a not insignificant sliver of people who pulled the lever for him that day that maybe didn't love that so much. And now that Senate controls off the table, it's a little bit harder to see them getting excited to, you know, to sort of get out and vote on, you know, during during the runoff. All of which is a way of saying, I, if I were, I would much rather be playing Warnock's hand right now. He's doubled his fundraising during the runoff. He's doubled his ad spending. Warnock had ads on during the Macy's Day Parade on Thanksgiving. Politics these days is often used to divide us. But Thanksgiving offers us an opportunity to consider all the things we share in common. And so it does feel like there's a little tiny bit of momentum building up, um, building up for Warnock. You haven't seen a stream of Republicans coming into the state to stand with Herschel and all of that. And remember, he already underperformed Kemp by 200,000 votes on Election Day. So Kemp being, of course, the governor of Georgia. The Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, who won handily over Stacey Abrams, a Democrat. Um, you know, so there's just a lot. Of, he's facing a lot of headwinds right now. Um, the early voting numbers, 156,000 people voted this weekend in Georgia, heavily in Black Metro Atlanta, places like Athens, Savannah, Columbus. I mean, these are these are Democratic voters, heavily uh, African American voters. D these are really good signs for Raphael Warnock. And, and recall, remember, uh, Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp, kept uh, kept Walker at a distance throughout <laughs> until until he was safe himself. So I mean, voters see that we we can't 
take for granted the, the voters' intelligence on that issue. So they they can tell the difference between the fact that Kemp was absent for a long period of time until he was okay himself. Well, listen, I was focused on making sure that I got reelected, and it wasn't just helping me; it was helping our whole ticket. We had a really good night here in Georgia. We won every you know statewide race. Republicans did. Um, Nancy, one interesting thing we're seeing is that evangelical voters are backing uh, Herschel Walker, even though Raphael Warnock is a minister. And so there's that unusual split that we've seen. We saw it with Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, Donald Trump versus all Democrats, really, where evangelicals uh, backed him up in part because he was pushing Supreme Court justices, which was a really big issue, in part on the abortion issue. But for Herschel Walker, abortion is a much more complicated thing. It definitely is because there have been all these, uh, I've, I've sort of lost track, I think at least two or three women who have said at this point that Walker asked them personally to get abortions. As you said, he has denied it. But I think that what has been important with evangelical voters is just what these politicians promise to do with their vote when they have it, not necessarily their personal action. We saw the same thing with Trump. We saw Trump making comments during the 2016 campaign on the Hollywood Access tape where he talked about women, how you can just grab them. Evangelicals still voted for him based on his policy stance and what he said he would do with abortion. And I think we're seeing the same dynamic play out with Walker. Um, I just think the one interesting thing to look at is, you know, uh, a lot of the Trump-backed candidates in the midterms did not win. And Walker is a Trump-backed candidate. So I think that this will be a final test ahead of 2024 about how much Trump's endorsement and the, the candidates that he has handpicked, how well they actually do. Well, of course, Donald Trump is going to walk into any conversation like this. So since he did, let's spend just a minute on that. Uh, Trump is not going down uh, to Georgia. I guess he's in Florida going up to Georgia to campaign in person for Herschel Walker. Um, And there's some speculation that it's because Walker and the Republicans don't want Trump near him for exactly the reason you just said, Nancy Craig. Um, What is Trump's uh, sort of value or possibly his, you know, lack of value to this race? Yeah, he's definitely, you know, he's doing some fundraising calls and doing some, you know, sort of email appeals. So his name is is around in Georgia, heavily targeted, highly targeted to the voters that where that would be an appeal. But I think Donald Trump motivates Democrats to get to the polls a lot more than he motivates Republicans to get to the polls these days. It would have been criminal malpractice for Donald Trump to show up in Georgia and stand next to Herschel Walker, just because if you're a Republican and you're going to, you know, you're thinking about Walker, Trump showing up, it's hard to imagine it sways you all that much one way or the other. You're with Herschel and you're going to go and you're going to vote. Democrats, they get blood in their eyes when they see Donald Trump. And there he is right in their state reminding them of all the reasons why they you know, voted for Joe Biden in 2020, the narrow win that turned Georgia then, why they voted for Warnock the first time and why they want to vote for him a second time. So, you know, a, a rare bit of uh, discretion from the former president who usually doesn't much like to be told where he can and can't go. Actually, a smart move on his part. But Boy, does that just shout about his devalued status as, as a Republican um, kingmaker. Obviously, his handpicked candidate in Pennsylvania, Mehmet Oz, lost. His handpicked candidate in Arizona for governor lost, Gary Lake. There's an argument to be made that Republicans could control the Senate right now if Donald Trump had had a little bit less to do with picking their candidates in some of these races. Um, and so I think as we all watch that pretty flat announcement, the past couple of weeks of some pretty rough commentary on the former president, Again, a rare moment when he actually kind of did the right thing for his party and for his candidate by just staying the heck away. When we come back, we're going to look ahead to the next couple of years and, believe it or not, the next presidential race.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Mario, now looking ahead past this election, Democrats have held on to the Senate, but they did lose the House, which means Republicans there will be trying to block Biden's every move. What do the next two years in Washington look like when it comes to getting anything done? Yeah, well, it gives it gives uh, President Biden a, a bit of a buffer, right? So, I mean, he doesn't have two chambers giving him head, a headache as, as, as he'll have the one in the House which is, as we mentioned earlier, there'll be investigations on everything from the Afghanistan withdrawal to uh, his uh, his son, Hunter Biden, as well. Uh, so the, the Senate, at least, he doesn't have to worry about that. And, and he could still try to find, earnestly, try to find some ways to compromise, right? Uh, score some political points, as Craig mentioned, by, by having some legislation come out of the Senate and force House Republicans to either be obstructionists or go along with the with with the president. Well, let me ask you about that, because, you know, Biden does have that senator's sensibility where he believes in the better angels and people can really compromise on on policy and ideas. And, you know, it, it seems pretty quaint now because it seems like politics in D.C. is about not just winning, but about punishing the other side. And if you look at the House do they really want to be seen as compromising with Joe Biden in any kind of way? Or do they actually think it's better to be seen as obstructing? That obstruction used to be a bad word in Washington. And now for certain people, it seems to be what you want. Yeah, well, I mentioned the word headache, right? So if Biden has a, a headache from the House, you got to imagine what Kevin McCarthy's going to have as well. And that's well, Kevin right? McCarthy, of course, the minority leader who wants to be Speaker of the House. Exactly. So he's got one wing of his party that wants nothing but revenge for everything going back to 2020 and then some of the investigations under former President Donald Trump. But you got voters, they've got a very thin majority, underwhelming performance in the midterms. Voters are showing that they have little appetite for this vengeance tour as well. So he's going to have to figure out how to corral his, his caucus there. Nancy, um, Joe Biden is looking at running for president. Kind of looks like he's going to run. He hasn't said he's going to run. There's questions about his age. There's questions about whether somebody else should pick it up or if Biden's the only one. All that swirling around. You cover the Biden administration. What do you see? So I see a president and a, a top White House staff that was very, very emboldened by the midterms. Um, even though they lost the House, it was by a much smaller margin than they thought. They held the Senate, which would, they were super excited about. And they did that amid, like, the highest inflation in 40 years and amid the presidential approval rating, which was pretty low. And so they are feeling great. They're feeling like, you know, Biden just, you can tell when you're around them. They're, they're like, in a good mood. They're jovial. The president's in a great mood. Do they think it's because of Biden? Like, do they think that this is proof that Biden's agenda is working? They do. They 100 percent believe that. In a press conference the day after the midterms, a reporter asked the president, uh, are you going to do anything differently? You know, it seems like you have lost the House. You know, what do you plan to do differently? And he said, I thought this was such an interesting, amazing answer. Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. 
the more they know about what we're doing, the more support there is. So they really feel like they they were vindicated. And and I, you know, he hasn't made a decision yet about whether or not he's going to run, but my money would be on him running again. And he's 80. And so he would be at the end of a second term if he got reelected 86. And so I think the real question in the Democratic Party is that, you know, it's an age thing. Is that too old to run? Craig, you know, Joe Biden and his team, like Nancy says, are taking their victory lap on this one because at least they held off, you know, the worst outcome. But Biden's numbers uh, are looking pretty bad. Do you think the American people think that Joe Biden won this election? Like, do they think that he's doing a great job? Yeah, I mean, the approval ratings are not where they need to be. But in a lot of ways, I would argue that sort of makes the the enormity of the victory a few weeks back, as, you know, as enormous as it is. Um, he went up against historical trends, one of the best, you know, midterms for any president, you know, in memory almost. A, a low approval rating, one of the main things you look at in that historical trend. His isn't great, and he still managed to pull it off. So they have they have some real justifiable reasons to feel good about this. I guess I sort of look at it as the, you know, it was sort of like, your country needs you, Joe, in, uh, in 2020, and, they, and he pulled it off, and he beat Donald Trump. I, I think he would have a pretty good shot to beat Donald Trump again. The danger for Joe Biden, if he does run, and I'm, I'm in with Nancy thinking that he will run, anyone who watched that a day after the election press conference, that, that's a guy who's running for president. Um, if it's not Donald Trump, that's a much tougher thing. You know, obviously a lot of buzz around Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who had an enormous victory on election night, 20 points, carried Miami-Dade County, heavily Democratic Miami-Dade um, area there. He is he is riding very high. So now you have, with Trump, you don't have so much of an age contrast or roughly similar. DeSantis is very young, much, much different, very much a next generation. Americans always like to pick the next generation for their president and not, not really look backwards. So, you know, tell me who his opponent's going to be and I'll tell you how he does. I actually do think he could sort of replicate the Biden, you know, the Biden coalition, for lack of a better word, in 2024 to beat Donald Trump. Is it enough to beat any of a few other people, ah, that's a much higher hill to climb. But the problem with the Democrats is they, their bench is not is not great. I mean, there we come to Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, again, I think she would be almost the guaranteed successor. She is the vice president, a historic figure, obviously first African-American, first uh, South Indian American. Very hard for the Democratic Party to say, eh, you know what, Kamala, you didn't do such a great job as vice president. We're gonna go with a Gavin Newsom or fill in the name of somebody else. Not a lot there um, beyond her, obviously, historic, the historic nature of her own vice presidency to get excited about for Democrats as an electoral force in 24. So we hear Craig spelling out this kind of dilemma that the Democrats have where it would be really difficult for them not to pick Kamala Harris if Joe Biden didn't run for one reason or another, but not a whole lot of enthusiasm about her as a candidate. What do you see from sort of inside the White House about that question of, is Kamala Harris the default Democratic pick uh, if Joe Biden isn't running again? Well, I think that that is part of the reason. I mean, I think Trump and and also that quandary is exactly why Biden would run again. Like there's not I, I don't think that the White House views 
her vice presidency is something that has been, you know, it's been a real mixed bag. There's been a lot of stuff turnover, a lot of problems. And so I, I don't think it's something that people inside the White House would feel totally comfortable having her be the successor. Um, and, and so, you know, I just think they're really conscious of that. And I think that that will factor into Biden's decision, along with the idea that, like, he's the one that can stop Trump. You know, he is a centrist Democrat at a time when a lot of progressives are pulling the party very far left. There's a firm belief inside the White House that that is a very key part of him running, too, because regular Americans, they think, want a more centrist approach than, you know, what some of the Hill Democrats are proposing. Um, But I do think if she did, if Biden didn't run and she ran, there would also be a bunch of Democrats who would jump into the race. Governors like Pritzker um, or in Illinois, Illinois, uh, Gavin Newsom of California. It would just be like a much more wide open field. Um, But it's just been tricky because Democrats haven't really had as much success building the bench as as Republicans. And I think there's a a much wider Republican field of people who have eyed or expressed interest in running for the presidency. Mario, you're going to get the last word here. Um, You heard uh, both Craig and Nancy say that they think that Joe Biden looks like a guy who's running. Um, You covered Donald Trump uh, as White House correspondent. Do you think Biden versus Trump, too, uh, Biden or Trump uh, wins? And if it's not Trump and it's someone like DeSantis in Florida, Ron DeSantis, uh, can Biden beat him? Great question. Well, I think in terms of Biden, Trump, the polls show that Biden would still edge uh, former President Donald Trump 2.0 rematch. I think that as we we talk about this right now at this moment, what's uh, you call it symmetry, poetry, whatever your favorite term is. But Biden has often said that Charlottesville was the impetus for him running the white supremacists, et cetera. As we're recording this right now, Donald Trump is still dealing with the aftermath of sitting with a white supremacist as well, right? So that has to inform. That was the dinner that he had in Florida. Exactly, exactly. So if you're one, if you're Biden and you're deliberating on to, as to whether to run again, this is a, a nice sign if you want, right, for, for you to be emboldened. Biden versus DeSantis. Again, right now the polls show, many of the polls show Biden edging him, but I think that Republicans will welcome that one for sure. Mario Parker, Nancy Cook, and Craig Gordon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Wes. You can read more from Craig Gordon, Mario Parker, and Nancy Cook, and follow all of Bloomberg's politics and election coverage at Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Read today's story and subscribe to our daily newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to BigTake at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Mo Barrow and Michael Falero. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.